Thank you for joining me in part two of the Hospital Medicine Podcast in regards to influenza. My name is Dr. Gil Parat, and I think a good place to start off this lecture is basic immunology, meaning if you get an infection, you should make antibodies to that infection and theoretically not get that infection ever again unless you have something wrong with your immune system. And yet, that does not happen with the flu. And the reason that doesn't happen is because of a great genetic diversity that happens with influenza. It is a virus that keeps mutating. As the virus reproduces, there are point mutations that happen during viral replication. Minor antigenic changes happen all the time from year to year, and these are called antigenic drifts. But when a major change happens in the surface glycoproteins of influenza, there is an antigenic shift. And that is when you can be set up for having a pandemic. The Greek word pan means all. And when we talk about pandemics, we're talking about in an exceptionally widespread worldwide problem. And with influenza, it usually takes a new virus strain or a strain that we have not seen in a long time to cause a pandemic. And it should be said that a pandemic doesn't really refer to the severity of illness caused by the virus, but rather how global its reach was. So in 2009, when we had the H1N1 virus pandemic, it really was a self-limited disease, just a influenza, a flu for most people. Again, because it had such a big reach, so many more people died of influenza that year. Now, each virus is different, and with different genetics, it can affect different populations in different ways. So in 2009, pregnant women were particularly affected, and it's estimated that 6 to 10% of patients who died that year were pregnant. And also in that 2009 H1N1, it seemed that severe obesity was another major risk factor for having major complications and death. And then there are those that each year seem to have a higher complication for death from influenza, such as very young children, as well as the elderly that are greater than 65 years of age, and those with lung disorders, particularly asthma, COPD, cystic fibrosis. In 2009, it was particularly interesting with the elderly because, yes, they did have a higher case fatality rate, that they had the lowest rate of becoming infected. And that's something I want to get back to in discussion about the H1N1 flu. Those that we did see die in 2009, uh, very often they had diffuse viral pneumonitis, you know, ARDS or adult respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, they would become very hypoxic and develop organ failure such as kidney failure. And the histopathologic findings they were seeing that year was diffuse alveolar damage, causing uh, vascular congestion, sometimes even alveolar hemorrhage. 
And it looks like one of the reasons we were seeing such severe cases of viral pneumonitis in some people has to do with the receptors, the H1N1 that you're uh, bound very well to the distal airways and alveolar pneumocytes, and that H1N1 seem to replicate particularly well in the bronchial epithelium. But again, for most people, it was a self-limited illness that you had the typical symptoms of fever, cough, myalgias, severe fatigue. So basically, there was a very broad spectrum of clinical syndromes. And then there were those patients that seemed like the fairly typical deaths, the unfortunate ones with co-infection with staph and strep, which is a variety of critical care illness that we see every influenza season. Now, the H1N1 influenza A has a particularly interesting story. One of the interesting facts in that story is the 1918 flu seems to be an H1N1 influenza A virus. There are different H1N1 strains, so probably wasn't the exact virus in 1918, but what was interesting is that the antibody that you had in 1918 seemed to be very long-lasting for those who lived through that pandemic. And if you remember just a few moments ago, I did say that one of the risk factors for dying of H1N1 was if you were greater than the age of 65, but I also said that those greater than the age of 65 had the lowest rates of infection that year, meaning they just weren't infected as much as the rest of the population. Again, because they probably had a significant amount of people in that generation that had an antigen memory, meaning they had some immunity. There was a very interesting paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2009 on July 16th that was titled Historical Perspective, Emergence of Influenza A H1N1 Viruses. And it's such a fascinating paper because the authors explain that in 1957, H1N1 just kind of disappeared. And the thinking behind it was that the population had developed immunity to H1N1. And also at that time, there was a competitive strain, H2N2. And with those two factors and possibly other reasons that we don't understand why H1N1 went away, it nevertheless would not be seen in the human population for 20 years. So then what happened? What, what happened in 1977 when an outbreak of H1N1 occurred? Well, it turns out that 1977 reemergence of H1N1 was extremely similar to a 1950 strain of influenza A, H1N1. And so the authors of the article are pretty sure that the reemergence of H1N1 actually happened as an accidental release from a laboratory source of the 1950 H1N1. And since we are talking about H1N1, 
It is sometimes referred to as the swine flu, and a lot of people don't like that term, including myself. The reason is that in 2009, the H1N1 virus was not transmitted from pigs to humans, but really was a person-to-person -person transmission. The H1N1 in 1918, the pandemic then, seemed to infect both pigs and humans, but it really wasn't clear which was the chicken and the egg, meaning it may have been the humans that gave it to the swine. And of major importance, H1N1 isn't the swine influenza, meaning there are many influenza viruses that are endemic in pigs. So H1N1 is one of them, but so is H2N3 and H3N1 and H1N2. You get the idea, but H1N1 very rarely has direct transmission from pigs to humans in the modern era. We think it's extraordinarily rare. Again, H1N1 almost always is from human to humans. And the strains of RNA in the H1N1 we saw in 2009, some came from swine strains, some came from human flu strains, and some came from avian or bird strains. So it gets confusing and is actually a misnomer, I think, to call H1N1 swine flu, unlike maybe calling H3N2 the swine flu. An H3N2 outbreak has been happening at times at state and county fairs, particularly starting in 2012. So most of the infected people had exposure to swine in agriculture. And so far, H3N2 has not been a huge problem in humans, but if there starts to be a major human-to-human -human transmission, that could change. So we'll just have to keep our eyes open and see if that happens. The point of me bringing up the H3N2 swine flu is to explain that calling H1N1 the swine flu is just simply inaccurate. The pork industry was particularly upset about the potentially misleading misnomer of calling H1N1 the swine flu. I myself am not a fan of eating pig, but it should be noted that you could not get H1N1 through eating pork or pig, and apparently it did affect the industry that year. The other industry that was affected in a big way in 2009 was the Mexican travel industry, and therefore the whole country was really affected. You know, the respiratory illness was first noted in about March of 2009 in Mexico. Now, it spread like wildfire throughout the globe because of modern transportation, airlines. But people did avoid Mexico that year, except me and my family. We experienced cheaper prices and a less populated resort and a very thankful resort staff, because if you remember... The economy crashed in 2008, so with those 
two things going on, influenza and a poor economy. Uh, the Mexican economy was really suffering in regards to its travel industry. And so I think it's fascinating because that's one of literally thousands of examples throughout human history where pandemics have had a very major influence on the globe. Viruses and bacteria, they really guide the trajectory that we're on for both good and bad. With that being said, I think I will end part two of influenza at this point. And with so much still to be said about influenza, we'll pick up with a part three during the next podcast. You've been listening to Hospital Medicine with Dr. Gil Parat.